Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadbourne, and with me, as always, this season is Thomas Brooks. Hello, hello. And Alyssa Jones. Hi, everybody. And today we are continuing our discussion on memory. This is what our, I don't know, third, fourth, third episode on memory. And we're going to talk about perspective memory with two special guests. Uh, we have Dr. Blake Erickson and Dr. Kara Moore. Hello. <laughs> so we want to thank you first and foremost for joining us and, and being here to talk about your research. Absolutely. Uh, th thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. And we normally let our guests introduce themselves uh, outside of you know, title and name. And, and so uh, if you'd like, give, tell us a little bit about or tell our, our listeners a little bit about yourself. Kara, yeah, uh, you go first. All right. I am an assistant professor at Oklahoma State University. I earned my PhD in experimental psychology at the University of Arkansas in 2017. And my research interest lies in cognitive errors in particular because these errors can lead to problems for people. One context in which these problems can be especially consequential is in the legal field. So my work has focused on understanding and improving attention and memory errors in the legal setting. I have two major lines of research. One is on examining how people make memory errors in the context of eyewitness memory. So that line of research is focused on how children and adults use logic-based memory strategies to prevent memory errors and false memories. The other line of research focuses on the role of attention and memory in person searches or prospective person memory, both of which refer to people's ability to search for, find, and recognize unfamiliar target persons, such as missing or wanted people. Okay, and uh, and yeah, I, I'm uh, William Blake Erickson, professor at Texas A&M University at San Antonio, uh, and uh, I too uh, earned my PhD at the University of Arkansas uh, in 2016, and my expertise is in applied cognition, uh, specifically face perception and recognition in forensically relevant scenarios, including eyewitness memory and the search for missing persons, so a great deal of overlap. In fact, Kara and I both came out of the same lab. Uh, my major tentpole is investigating the effectiveness of age-progressed images of long-term missing persons and fugitives, and uh, most of my focus has been on age-progressed images of missing children uh, and uh, depicting them either as older children or teenagers uh, or adults. And so I compare artists with different levels of expertise and different techniques, as well as in combination with uh, algorithmic computer-generated approaches to simulating facial aging. And uh, primary outcomes that, that I study are accurate recognition uh, of real people based on these artificial images, uh, as well as subjective perceptions about them, specifically things like, you know, how similar is face A to face B, where face A is a real face, face B is one of the age progressions. Uh, so of who maybe that person is intended to depict, so. I research anime fans. It's not nearly as exciting sound as exciting sounding. That sounds scarier. <laughs> it can be, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I guess uh, I guess we'll we'll get started. I'm gonna let uh, Thomas and Alyssa take over on this. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a back seat and learn some stuff today. Sounds good, Thomas. Do you want to take it away in the beginning? I think you have some more general questions. And I have oh, some yeah. more specific ones. 
Yeah, absolutely. I guess the first thing I want to understand is what are the ins and out of prospective memory? Does this only relate to uh, the applied situations such as missing persons or fugitives? Or how are we using prospective memory in a general sense, like in our day to day lives? You want to take it, Blake, or would you like me to? Oh, that's all you. Okay. So, prospective memory, I got to quit saying stuff. I'll already do this one. Prospective memory is remembering to perform a task in the future when the enabling conditions occur to allow that task to be performed like mailing a letter when you encounter a USPS postal box. So prospective memory is something that happens in our everyday lives and can pertain to anything that we need to remember to do. I think that answers the first part of your question, Thomas, or maybe the second part of your question. I don't think I got all of it though. Can you remind me? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So as a function of memory, this is gonna be something that's happening in the future that we have to remember in the present to prepare for then? Absolutely. Okay. I was going to say, so how does perspective person memory fit in with, in the, you know, context of perspective memory as a whole? Prospective person memory can be conceptualized as a prospective memory task. It involves remembering to be on the lookout for a specific person that one has encountered in a missing or a wanted person's alert, and then remembering to perform the task of contacting the authorities if a person then encounters them as they go on about their day-to-day life. How good are we at doing that? Because I, you know, I go to Walmart, I go to the restroom area where they have all of the lists of, you know, pictures of children who are missing. And I don't think that I could actually like, A, remember the face or B, put that face to the person if I ever even ran into them. And so I kind of just, you know, my advisor jokes that I don't look at walls, but how effective is it to actually look at the wall? People tend to perform rather poorly at staged missing person searches and wanted persons that um, we have done for our research. So typically between five and 10% of people make it sighting. It seems like a big component of failures in that process though, are due to paying attention to searching for the person in the real world. And some of it's also due to face recognition. But that's in those studies, we control for things like whether the person paid attention to the alert. Right. And I've I've read a bit of your research, uh, Kara, and you have definitely proposed, you know, different stages that go into play when it comes to a successful um, perspective person memory encounter leading to, you know, a final alert. And based on what you just said, um, it seems like there might be a lot of errors going on in terms of attending to the person later on once they've already seen the uh, alert for the missing person. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you've been doing recently in terms of, you know, attention and, and where, you know, the research is, is at currently in terms of trying to, you know, really answer some of these applied questions regardless of the issues you face, you know, in the lab with, with low report rates. The staged missing and wanted person searches that we do involve asking people to be on the lookout for a person for a chance to win a cash prize. So they're looking for people usually on a university campus. And as I mentioned before, 
People tend to perform really poorly at that task. And we had really narrowed it down to attention and face recognition failures is reason why people were failing to identify the person. To better understand what attentional mechanisms underlie those failures, I conduct a study with a slightly different methodology. So in this study, participants engaged in our kind of traditional field-based study, but instead of releasing them from the lab to search on their own, after they saw the missing persons alert, they were asked to complete a second experiment. We were told them that the second experiment was being conducted by a different researcher and lots of other things to make the fact that they were actually engaging in a totally different experiment really convincing. The actual point was to give participants a controlled chance to encounter the missing person. So in the second experiment, they were told they would do a scavenger hunt, and they did in fact do that. But during that scavenger hunt, I manipulated whether participants noticed the missing person. So for half of participants, they actually had to speak to the missing person to continue with the scavenger hunt. And so that allowed me to see, is it just that participants aren't actually laying eyes on a missing person. When we did that manipulation, sighting rates increased from about three to four percent up to 11 percent. So people were still, the majority of people were still failing to notice the person to report a sighting. And that suggested to us that an intentional blindness might be occurring because participants don't expect to encounter a missing person. We know that from other studies. And even though they're talking to her, they're still not reporting seeing her. And over 70% are able to identify this person from a lineup 24 or more hours later, indicating they can remember what her face looks like. Now, we did one other manipulation in the study. We put participants in retrieval mode when they encountered the missing person. So they were actually checking the faces of people they were encountering to see if that was the missing person. When we did that, sighting rates increased more than they have with any other intervention we've done in a field-based study, but performance was still not at ceiling. It was at around 60% or so. So right now I'm working to use eye tracking to understand the role of inattentional blindness in these search failures and to expand our conceptualization of prospective person memory to person searches more generally, because sometimes uh, sometimes missing and wanted person searches can take the form of a prospective memory task, but they don't always. And so there are intentional mechanisms to understand in those other types of searches as well. Could you give us some examples of those other kinds of searches? Absolutely. So as an example of another kind of search, let me first talk a little bit more about what a prospective person memory search looks like. So in these searches, participants are going on about their day-to-day -day lives. They're doing other tasks while they're on the lookout for the missing or wanted person. So essentially their attention is divided, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case in the real world. A person could be a police officer whose task is to search for a missing or wanted person or a volunteer as a part of a search committee who is solely on the lookout for a missing person. And people may perform differently when they're able to focus all of their attention to searching, as opposed to when searching is divided. And we don't have a lot of research in that area when full attention is devoted to the search just yet. I guess 
a secondary question I have, and I guess Blake might be able to speak more to this, um, is when it comes to the pictures for identification, what does the role of the recency of the picture as compared to the missing person play? And can you kind of walk us through how we age people up for very old cases? Uh, sure, absolutely. So obviously, we want to get the most recent images to serve as a as a probe or, or for for these prospective person memory searches uh, that we can. And uh, of course, in long term missing persons cases, especially in cases with missing children, uh, you don't have the most recent photo, uh, or rather, the most recent photo. Um, depicts a, quite a big distance from the present day. And that produces kind of a big problem, uh, especially when we're talking about children who have been missing for 10 to 20 years. Uh, a lot of big uh, like growth uh, and maturation processes take place. Uh, major one is that uh, child, uh, children's skulls, and, and this was very fun because I had to get all into physical anthropology uh, to, to, to look into uh, or to begin this research area. Um, children's skulls are very round, uh, and uh, especially in the profile. Uh, and as you age, you know, the jaw lowers and kind of extends forward. The mandible gets a lot bigger, like bigger, uh, like it grows disproportionately compared to the rest of the skull, uh, which means that from the profile, what you get is what the researchers call a cardioidal shape. In other words, kind of a heart-like shape. Um, I didn't even know that was a geometric uh, <laughs> word before going into all this. So going from like a round shape, uh, facial profile or head profile to a cardioidal or heart-shaped one. And so uh, th that uh, creates a lot of major changes to the face itself. Uh, other things that uh, I didn't know before going into this is that uh, the, the skull actually has several bones that are all fused together. Now, now, during the maturation process up until about age 25, which, you know, when all of, most of the maturation processes stop, uh, th these bones kind of drift around almost like tectonic plates. Like, like you know, they, they, there's a absorption where, where one kind of uh, like dips underneath of another one. And then there's kind of the, the growth outward from one uh, as well. Uh, I forget that technical term off of the top of my head. Uh, but the main point is all of these changes are holistic. And uh, in terms of normal development, a change in one part of the face is going to affect all sorts of other subtle changes uh, to other regions of the head and face. And so these are all things that the artists need to account for when they are uh, trying to age up these photos to create uh, uh, hopefully a photorealistic depiction of what this person would look like today. And a uh, number of techniques that they use, many of the forensic artists who specialize in this kind of work, because that's one thing that's worth pointing out, um, it, real artists actually sit down and put uh, pen to paper, or in this case, stylus to touchpad, uh, you know, and using Adobe Illustrator or other such things, uh, software tools for this work. And, and uh, they have to account for all of those types of uh, changes that get anthropological, physical anthropological training uh, in, as well as fine art training. 
And uh, many of the artists who we've included uh, in our research, uh, who are anonymized from us, by the way, we, we don't know specific names. Uh, we, we have a kind of a go-between uh, to, to keep them as anonymous as possible. And, uh, and, and so many of them do think that it's kind of 50-50 art and science uh, adjusting and, and making estimations based off of all of these things. Now, as far as age progression in adulthood, which we, you tend to see um, as well, but, but it, it's not quite as high profile, uh, like age progressed images of missing children tend to end up on billboards more than age progressed images of say, like, uh, the Whitey Bulger case, uh, was a major one from about 10 years ago. He was actually number two on the, uh, FBI's most wanted list after bin Laden, uh, during those years. And then, uh, and I believe there was a, a movie based on him, uh, starring Johnny Depp. He was an Irish mobster who was on the run for about 20 years. But anyway, um, uh, the changes in adulthood starting about age 25 are things that, uh, uh, I'm trying to come up with a good word for it, um, uh, that is not deterioration, <laughs> but, but, but generally, so, so like the, um, you know, the, 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 you know, the sorts of things that you hear, like with crow's feet starting to set in around the eyes, laugh lines around the lips. Um, and of course, cartilage continues to grow. So ears and nose continue to get bigger, gum lines short, uh, shorten. So all of that lengthening of the jaw that happened during childhood actually gets shorter as you age past 25. Uh, and, uh, and, and the elasticity and fat deposits uh, change over time in a holistic nature as well. Hairline recedes and then textural changes uh, as well, such as like uh, spots on the face, liver spots, and that's more in kind of like past age of 50 or 60. So, so the, the point is uh, predicting this with certain for any specific person is really, really hard because aging isn't just a normal process. It's affected by the environment. Um, so sun exposure, uh, what people's diets are like, how much do they drink? Do they smoke? Do they do any other drugs? And in cases of long-term, especially missing children who get recovered, um, they tend to, uh, especially if they're still like, like in like being held by their captives or if they've assumed a new identity somewhere uh, that they, they uh, many of them do develop uh, substance abuse problems uh, you know it's reasonable like as a coping mechanism or something like that so so uh, really the these are all kind of the individual variables that try to be accounted for um, uh, aside from just normal knowledge about like normal uh, growth patterns. That's all really interesting. Um, about how many people are out there that you would say on average could actually, you know, be an artist that could portray somewhat accurate age progression? How many people could be out there? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, uh, arguably, any artist with fine art training uh, who specializes in facial portraitures could potentially do it, uh, as we've seen with, uh, say, Disney aging and de-aging artists or bringing some actors like Peter Cushing back from the dead to be in new Star Wars movies. Um, uh, th these are definitely talents that, that many people with fine art skills have as far as full-time working forensic artists 
who specialize in age-progressed imaging and work for institutions uh, like the National Center for Missing Exploited Children and other uh, counterparts around the world. There's really only a few dozen. How effective are these aged portraits on, in general? Like, Because it seems like if we can't get, think, taking the prospective memory into account, does aging up the face actually help with identification? Uh, well, in, in real world cases, it's really hard to say uh, because uh, the failure to recover uh, a missing person or a missing child could be due to the fact that they're deceased. And so you, you can't necessarily attribute that to uh, the failure or, or the inaccuracy of the uh, updated depiction. But in the systematic research that uh, uh, I started working on in graduate school and that I'm sort of continuing um, in prospective person memory paradigms, uh, there was a study uh, that I conducted that um, uh, where the uh, it was basically a PPM study manipulating uh, several different variables such as age range uh, as well as uh, artists. So we would uh, that we gave artists images of uh, volunteers. So these are people who we know aren't missing. We just kind of put up an ad and, and had psych students uh, say, hey, do you want to make uh, some money? Uh, give us uh, pictures of yourself as a child, as well as pictures of your family. And uh, surprisingly, not a lot of people answer those ads, uh, but, but, but they do. Um, uh, uh, we, we did uh, retrieve enough images uh, and uh, we made sure to get like a, a, you know, four, uh, four boys and four girls and then age progress, uh, it, get images of them at standardized ages uh, so that we had pictures of them at age five, uh, 12, as well as current images. So they'd be around 20 years old if they're college undergraduates. Um, and so we gave the artists, uh, some subset of the artists, uh, just pictures of the children at age five, and then other uh, subsets of artists, pictures of the uh, children at age five and 12. And then uh, the different uh, artists would then age progress, say the age five children to age uh, 12 and then 20. And then the uh, artists who got pictures of children at age 12 would age progress them to 20. So we have these uh, kind of uh, seven and 15 year age gaps uh, at different time periods uh, throughout childhood to deal with. Um, and in a prospective person memory paradigm where, where we show the fruits of the artist's labor, um, where we would compare, uh, so in a between subjects, uh, PPM experiment, we would just show people different faces, some subset of the uh, uh, probe images that we want them to uh, use uh, or keep in mind throughout the rest of the task. Some of these are the age progressions. Uh, some of them are, uh, some of the participants got current age photos and some of the participants got outdated photos. So here's just a picture of, of the person at age five and 12. And uh, the PPM memory task was pretty simple. It was team sorting. So it was a big set of faces that they had to sort uh, left and right. I think they had to hit the Q and P keys on the keyboard. Uh, and they had to make two teams, the Q team and the P team uh, with equal numbers of boys and girls, or at least as much as they could. So it's something that required a little bit of sustained attention. Um, but of course, the as Kara said, in, in a PPM scenario, you, you ask people to be on the lookout at the beginning. And if you see this person, uh, 
uh, make sure to hit a specific key, other key on the keyboard to say that you saw them. And then, so don't sort that person, uh, send them back to their family. You know? and, uh, and, and so um, in, in that experiment, uh, the, the age progressions uh, did not perform as well as current age images, which is something we kind of expected, but they also didn't perform as well as the outdated photos. So just seeing a photograph of a five-year-old um, was, for our participants, was, was a good enough probe to recognize that person at age 20 later, and also with the age 12 uh, photos as well. Um, in fact, the, on average, the age progressed images, uh, averaging across all the artists and all the images for all the different targets, uh, was uh, around chance. And so that, that's in a systematic uh, prospective person memory paradigm conducted in a laboratory. And I really just want to stress that, once again, this is sort of a systematic approach, uh, uh, trying to keep it within the confines of laboratory-based uh, cognitive science. Um, there are absolutely cases, and, and uh, they, they make it on the news because they're, they're notable when, say, there is a long-term missing person and the age-progressed image uh, does look uh, very close. Uh, notably, within the past decade, there was J.C. Dugard, uh, who was abducted, uh, and uh, I believe for 19 years um, uh, before she was recovered. And the age-progressed images uh, that um, were used mostly as a comparison uh, by the uh, by, by the police who who came and uh, kind of picked her up and rescued her, um, just kind of to compare her to the age progressed image. Uh, uh, it it does look just subjectively if you go out and look at the case yourself, it looks pretty similar. So, so earlier you mentioned uh, digital or algorithmic age progression, I believe. How is that different than what what goes on in that process as compared to giving a child's portrait to an artist and say, hey, what might they look like when they're 20? Uh, the, the difference is uh, and, and the various um, A or, or, or face algorithms for computers are, are rather different. They, they vary based on uh, the, some of the specifics of the algorithm. A lot of the newest ones are convolutional neural networks and uh, the technical aspects of these, I, it's, it's, it's outside of my area uh, to, to put it mildly, but we do have a collaborator uh, in England, Charlie Froud, uh, who's kind of the digital imaging specialist who uh, does forensic work with uh, uh, facial composites of say like, you know, using computers to replace police sketches, uh, for example. And so, so you don't need an artist, uh, you just need a trained technician or, or maybe even the long-term goal is you don't even need the trained technician. You, you can just hand a tablet with the software on there and then they can put together say like, oh, this is the person who stole my purse. Now, as far as the algorithms for facial aging, um, they tend to use kind of the brute force approach that I was talking about earlier, where they can study a lot of faces at different ages, notice patterns in the difference uh, between say the different age groups, and then just apply those patterns uh, to any image that you input. So like say, okay, so, so we've had, a, had a, our algorithm and uh, we've trained it uh, to notice patterns and say like here's five-year-olds, six-year-olds, uh, you know, as 
continuously or discontinuously as you want to you know have those cutoffs uh usually they work better with like age ranges of about five years um just because individual differences vary so much so is this a five-year-old or a six-year-old something like that but the five the five-year differences are much more stark uh, and, and so th they do tend to just apply kind of the overall averages. Uh, it's worth pointing out that this is different than, say, like the face app that seems to apply the same wrinkles to everybody's face. Uh, yeah, you know, no matter if you, oh, here's what I look like when I'm 80, you know, so, so there's like that. But, but the, these, these more um, kind, of, kind of serious algorithms uh, uh, do produce slightly better uh results but once again not particularly well individuated down to uh say a particular person so this is all so great i do have a question for kara um regarding some of her recent work i was just wondering if you could explain to our listeners mainly because a lot of them are mm -hmm. freshmen in an introductory introductory psychology class um some of them are also in you know different levels of cognitive psychology courses I was just wondering if you could explain a little bit more about what an eye tracker is, what kind of data we can gather from an eye tracking device, and why it would be useful in the context of your, your research. Eye trackers allow us to record eye movements as well as take photos of people's eyes while they're doing tasks. So we can set up a prospective person memory task on a computer and track where people are looking how dilated their pupils are, and various other metrics about the eyes. So where people are looking is really important because we have research from the field showing that even when people lay eyes on a missing person and talk to her, they're not making a sighting. And so it's, I think, really interesting to think about to what extent looking at a target person or persons would predict whether people make a sighting or not. We would hope that setting eyes on the person would really help to increase sighting rates. And that was one thing that I thought could be a major contributor to sighting failures in the field. We simply thought like people were leaving the lab space and maybe getting on their phone or they were distracted. And so they didn't see the missing person in their physical space. But now from the field, we have some evidence that even when people look, that doesn't necessarily lead to a sighting, even when memory for the face is okay, which is really astounding. So I'm hoping to use the eye tracker to further help us to parse where attentional or memory failures are occurring in this process. And the eye tracker can provide measures of where people are looking, but it can also provide some insight into how well people are paying attention to a target person. Do they look at her? How long do they look at her or him or them? And in what ways are they interacting with the person's face with their eyes? And can we use that to predict whether they make a sighting or not? Have you also thought about using it for, you know, purpose of purposes of like recording and coding as well as, you know, at the time of retrieval? That's a really interesting idea. I haven't thought about it too much. I've been so focused on attention during the search that I haven't thought about it at some of those other steps in the process. But yeah, it would definitely be interesting and important to look at how people are looking, how much and where 
on the person's face when they study the picture, when they first get the alert before they're ever actually on the lookout for the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that would be really interesting as well in terms of, you know, how many images they're looking at at encoding, you know, how much time they're spending on each individual picture and just in general, uh, just for one picture, how long they spend, you know, to encode the actual message. But I think what you're trying to get at too, at, you know, the time of actually encountering the person, that's probably the spot where based on your research, like where there's probably errors happening. And I think the work that you're trying to plan to do is, is super influential in terms of trying to understand what's actually happening. And it is interesting that they could be lingering and, and focusing on the person and still not recognize the person, even though, like you said, later on when they're directly asked to identify the person, they don't really have that much, you know, you know, trouble doing that. But, you know, the perspective memory aspect is failing for some reason. Is there a difference between recognition and like feelings of familiarity when they encounter the person? Like, do they like, I don't know if this is something that y'all have asked, but are people like feeling more positive about the person when they meet them and the experiment, even though they're not necessarily explicitly recognizing them? That's an interesting question. I don't have any research that speaks to perceptions of the person when they encounter them. Like, please speak up if you do. I don't know. I I can't think of any research off the top of my head that would speak to that. Uh, Can, maybe we don't have systematic research, but uh, Kara and I both have an anecdote. Um, Should we mention the Subway sandwich anecdote? I don't know what the Subway sandwich anecdote off the top of my head is, but please do enlighten all of us. Okay, (laughs) so so as I say, this is merely an anecdote, but um, in many of the field studies that we worked on, um we we tried to make the task as easy as possible and one of the manipulations that we did uh or that we carried out was to have our target be uh an an older woman uh, a woman in her uh i believe late 70s early 80s and who on on a big college campus with uh, all like 30,000 students uh, that's a conspicuous individual particularly it's a conspicuous individual to be sitting at a bench right by the dining hall one of the main dining hall front doors and so um, she was our target participants would come into the lab and they would uh, see this they thought it was like a media rating study where they would watch several different news stories and the last story uh, it was always the, a missing persons alert that we produced uh, in, in the lab uh, that, that incidentally I did the voiceovers for. And so um, uh, using a li- drawing a little bit back on my, my old broadcasting experience, uh, that, that was a different lifetime ago. But we, we, uh, so, so, so they would see this. And so, and so as, as is typical in, in mild deception research like this, we say, okay, time out. Uh, this isn't really about rating your perceptions about these news stories. The last story that you saw 
was a uh, it was a missing persons alert that we made. The person isn't really missing, but they are actually on campus, and and uh, we want you to look for them. And if and if you find them, uh, you, you could get two hundred dollars. So all you have to do is email this email address. And so honestly, so much of the grant money that we ask for is is to pay participants for for these cash prizes uh, like this. And so. When, when we were writing our, our grants, though, those are big parts of the budgets. Anyway, um, so it, it was this older lady in the story said something about this is a silver alert. She has dementia and everything. Uh, in reality, she didn't. But, but uh, the other little uh, piece of the puzzle is that we specifically recruited participants who indicated on the pre-screening packet that, uh, that, that they have a meal plan and needed this specific dining hall on campus. And and uh, and and they eat there every day, or or almost every day. And so we, after this, you know, we, we'd have a week's worth of people, may, maybe a few hundred participants, uh, witness all of these things. It's it's a pretty short thing to run people through uh, one after the other. And so and so then we just asked her, and and we compensated her to just sit on the bench outside the dining hall, <laughs> uh, and uh, people have to pass by her uh, to, to get in there. And, and uh, I forget the specifics. I, I don't know if we didn't get any uh, notifications, Kara, if this is all ringing a bell now, uh, you, you can, you can speak up, but uh, she, so, so, so no one, you know, we, we didn't get any notifications. And so we're like, wow, that's pretty wild. And so we said, like, did you actually do that? And so she was like, oh, of course, yeah, you know. And so anyway, um, and, and so she, uh, however, we did send out follow-up surveys, as Kara mentioned earlier, with the face recognition tests and so forth, and asking people about their behaviors, including a little question at the end, did you ever think that you saw this person on campus? And, uh, and, and, and we got silly answers like, oh yeah, I did see her. She was on the news. It's Barbara Bush, you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, and things like that. But, but the one that really knocked us out was, you know what? I was walking through the park, one of the parking lots one day, and I thought I saw her in a car eating a sandwich. And, and we we're like, oh, okay. So, so we actually went back and asked her, hey, uh, were you ever sitting in your car eating a sandwich? And and she said, "Oh yeah, I got a sandwich at Subway every day during the little lunch hour that that you gave me, and and I just eat my sandwich in my car and listen to the radio." <laughs> and so somebody saw her sitting in her car eating a sandwich. Still didn't report anything. Still didn't say anything. It was quite a story. So they did notice her, but they still didn't report it, even though there was two hundred dollars on the line. That's crazy. Now, uh, and Kara can speak more to this because this is in, in her kind of a tree, uh, kind of like branching model of the various steps and successful prospect of person memory. But a lot of people, when when we ask them, uh, they just say they they're embarrassed about maybe being wrong, even though no one will know. Um, there's no punishment, uh, the, and and the worst that could happen is they don't get two hundred dollars. That's two hundred dollars. Like this is like it it it's blowing my mind that I'm talking to my social psych students about attention and like social cognition and how we kind of like pay attention to you know in a lot of cases we have that inattentional blindness, but we'll pay attention to oddities or things that aren't 
quote unquote normal in our day to day because they stand out. And in this case, they're motivated to do it. They have $200 on the line. This person is atypical for someone that they're normally going to see is right out in front of them. And it's just, I, I guess this kind of speaks to like the uphill battle that is helping with these missing, per missing person cases and, and really trying to, to help find some of these people that are missing. Yeah. It's interesting, like Blake said, in our field-based studies, we get a lot of participants who we survey after the fact and they made a sighting, but they were afraid to report it. They were afraid of being wrong. And it's clear to them, I think, that there are no consequences for being wrong. So it's really interesting to imagine how that might impact people making sightings of actual missing and wanted persons. But on the flip side of that, when I talk to practitioners, they're sometimes worried about the opposite problem, where cases that get tons and tons of publicity will get, you know, hundreds or thousands of tips or sightings, and most, if not all of them, are wrong. So it's tricky to think about what the right balance is to make sure we're getting the sightings that are accurate, but not inundating police or other authorities with false tips. Oh, and I'll add to that, uh, in cases where age progressions are used, um, sometimes, weirdly enough, the, the, the bad tips that come in are, let, let's just say the news story says, okay, here, here's this girl who went missing uh, 24 years ago, and then, you know, here's what she looked like then, here's the age progression. And some of the tips, many of the tips that the police will get are, oh, I think I saw that girl. It was like, uh, you, you mean like a, a about a 33-year-old, right? It was like, no, 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 an 11-year-old, like what they showed on, on, on the news. And, and, so, and so people are thinking that they're seeing the person based on the outdated image. Um, so, so that's its own complication in practice. Uh, So because we're nearing an hour, we do want to always ask our guests if money were not an option, if access to government uh, services was not an option, possibly if ethics were not an option, what kind of study would you want to conduct in order to kind of dig into uh, person identification for missing or uh, for missing persons or wanted people to answer these, you know, unanswerable questions at the moment? I think I would want to conduct wide-scale missing or wanted person searches where people think the person is actually missing or wanted, barring ethical concerns. There was some way for that to be possible. Uh, and manipulating different attentional and memory and expectation-based factors to try to get a better understanding of how those things impact search performance. So, for example, you would put me all over the news and say that I'm wanted for X, Y, and Z, and then I would just get to road trip across the country, and you would sit in your office and get calls? Absolutely. Cool. You would have to track everything you did so we could determine if people made a sighting of you or some other person. Mm, right. I mean, with surveillance capitalism, you could just, like, follow my GPS, I'm sure. <laughs> It'd be interesting, too, if we could actually do something like that, because you could manipulate, you know... I mean, 
the ideal circumstance would be able to manipulate the you know level of popularity that the the you know the the alert gets in terms of how many people see it versus how many people don't and if it's you know widespread across social media i mean i'm i'm currently thinking about the pretty um widespread case right now that is gabby petito um i'm not sure if y'all have heard of her but she's a 20 year 22 year old girl that's been missing for a few days um uh we i think that the they think that she's been gone since like the end of august but um, it's a pretty popular case that's gaining a lot of traction right now on social media. She disappeared in like the area of the Northwest Pacific Northwest. Um, but I think that that, like Kara mentioned earlier, you know, like cases where there's a lot of popularity, there's a lot of chances for, you know, a bunch of you know, inaccurate sightings or reports that aren't necessarily correct, but that's, you know, one end of the spectrum where in cases that maybe don't get as much traction in, in the news or as much popularity, there's not going to be as many sightings reported, even when people do see them. Along those lines too, I frequently get asked about how motivations the search might be different in missing versus wanted persons case, cases and how people might be motivated by goals to keep their community secure versus to help recover missing people. And it's hard to answer some of those questions when participants know no one's really missing or wanted in searches, but, you know, if we were dreaming of a scenario where we could conduct a study where people thought the person was actually missing or wanted, we could start to answer some of those questions too. So you could tell 25 of the states that I'm wanted and the other 25 that I'm missing and preferably put the wanted ones in like lower populated or more liberal minded states um <laughs> now we need a big security team for you too, to keep you nice and safe <laughs> right <laughs> it's a big scavenger hunt <laughs> no i uh uh as, as far as i'm thinking i, I kind of echo what kara says but but two words kept passing through my mind uh truman show but but i guess that could be the case for almost any social and behavioral or cognitive uh, research that with these kinds of applications uh, regarding age progressions, uh, uh, really just once once again want to stress that that uh, what those of us who are studying this particular aspect of the problem, we're trying to figure out what leads to those successful cases, what leads to those su- successful depictions, um, and and so we manipulate variables that we think might you know better predict uh successful accurate predictions like that and you know practicality and ethics be damned um you know having like a large sample of artists from different backgrounds different races different ethnicities uh for example like a in overrepresented number of missing persons cases are black or brown children. And so many of the age progressed artists or age progression artists uh, in, in the States and, and uh, obviously in Europe as well are, are white. And it, does that come into play? Uh, Cross race effect and face recognition is one of the most robust findings. Does that translate to the various processes related to uh, art generation? Uh, trying to come up with these depictions uh, and uh, and 
particularly that's something that I'm interested in since uh, I'm just three hours from uh, the U.S.-Mexico border and human trafficking is a major concern here and children are involved in those cases. Um, and, and that's actually a, a, a kind of a bi-directional trafficking uh, thing. So, so many other uh, cases of uh, children abducted, say, here in San Antonio, and it's believed that they're uh, taken to Mexico or Central America um, for various reasons, uh, various case by case. But um, if it could systematically observe just and control for every other variable and find out which one's uh, predict the, the most accurate depictions across these age gaps. Uh, that would be the dream. Uh, because the overall goal is to help the artists who, who make these uh, images. So that's the ideal. Practically, what are we looking at with the research trends? If let's say an undergraduate who's interested in cognition wants to go into the applied area of missing persons or wanted person identification, what would they expect, say, in three years, five years? What would their dissertation likely be over? I hope that a future of prospective person memory involves research and prospective person memory and person searches more generally. And I think that technology could be a big part of our future. We can harness the use of eye tracking and rapidly developing virtual reality headsets to embed real life 360 degree video footage of people walking around a football game or a shopping mall and have participants immersed in a really well controlled but realistic search to capitalize on both of those components. Whereas so far there's kind of a trade-off where in the lab we can have a lot of control and then field-based studies, we have a lot of realism, but it's hard to have both at the same time. So I think future research could focus on starting to use some of those technologies to create scenarios where we have both control and realism. VR seems like it's probably the closest we could get ethically to a Truman Show kind of situation where you can have everything that the person experiences be controlled and directed and then they're just experiencing it. Absolutely. Well, I, I guess that takes us to our bias of the week so we can finish up. So every week we, we go through this big spreadsheet. We have about 130 different biases and uh, we are slowly chipping away at them but we have plenty more and this season all of our biases so far have been brought to uh brought to us by kahneman and Saversky, or Saversky and kahneman uh, or something tangentially related to their research as as i'm going to kind of crown them the you know champions of biases and psych research so the the bias of the week this week is anchoring or focalism I try to find something that's kind of close to what we're talking about. And I, I figure if we're talking about information, we're talking about people focusing on faces, ah, maybe we can stretch it. So this is uh, Zversky and Kahneman, 1974. The tendency to rely too heavily on one piece of presented information, usually the first presented piece of information when making decisions. That reminds me of what Blake just said about how people see the little girl instead of the age progressed image. Yeah, that, that was going to be mine. But... <laughs> <laughs> I took it from you. 
And every time I don't think it connects really well, something like this happens and I feel better about my choice every week. Well, and, and, and it makes sense because anytime they present these cases on the news and uh, ever since getting rid of cable, which uh, you know, quick sidebar, I, I really recommend it. The, the, uh, I'm watching a lot more local news and keeping up with news in the city. And there are plenty of cases, especially in a city uh, as big as San Antonio. And of course, they always begin the stories, you know, with maybe a home video of the child uh, or photographs. And, uh, and then it's only toward the very end that they're like, and here is an age progressed image uh, that uh, the police have uh, commissioned and be on the lookout out for this person this is what they believe uh, he or she looks like now and uh and and that's the and and of course how many people don't even make it to the end of the story you, you know they, they go oh oh you know it's time to finish making the Velveeta shells and cheese you know so it's um yeah that, that's yeah yeah it makes it makes me think too that there's got to be something involved there with like who i guess we feel is most important to protect as well so if you're watching that story of the 10 year old kid like you might feel it a little more than seeing the 30 year old age progressed image and be like yeah that's an adult just maybe how we think about that cognitively but yeah if you're getting all that information first that would be anchoring well i i thank i want to thank you again uh blake and and kara for joining us um and and talking about your research and this the season's been been great for us talking about cognitive psychology because I am I'm not as well versed in in most cognitive psychology and it's it's something new every time something I'm learning every time and so thank thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. And so yeah, and I, I guess with that, oh, but we we do have to end with our um, yeah, Thomas has reached out in an attempt to get a special guest, and so we need to end with Chomsky Watch. Have we heard from Noam Chomsky? We have not heard from Noam Chomsky. <laughs> As it there is every is week. zero percent precipitation of Noam Chomsky in our future at the moment. I am checking the spam folder now, though. So it's good. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> our backup for, for Blake and Kara is that I am going to impersonate Noam Chomsky for an episode. And we're going to see how that goes. <laughs> And then I will be sending that episode to Noam Chomsky. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you could have joined us. Well, with that, with Chomsky watching the bias of the week done, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll we'll call it a night, or we'll call it an episode. And and with that, we'll we'll bid our listeners adieu. Bye. Bye, bye everybody.